So we've arrived at the ending, nearing the ending of our time together on this retreat. And it feels like it's too soon for it to end. We're just entering, in a way, a, a special kind of graceful and blessed space. It'd be nice to be in that longer, but uh, all things change, all things pass, and this retreat is no exception. Uh, I feel a, a very deep sense of appreciation for the way that Eugene and Spirit Rock have hosted us here, hosted all of us, uh, particularly Kitty Sara and I. We've, it's been a, um, a real blessing for us to um, share this time and reflections, particularly with Eugene. It's been, uh, I think, very profound for both of us, sparked a lot off in both of us, in all of us in terms of reflecting on the Dharma and, and in some ways running along parallel lines um, and in other ways having different perspectives and reflections around similar themes. So it's been very inspiring and uplifting. And so I can feel there's some reluctance to see, see it begin to dissolve. something else to let go of. (laughs) So, however, the form of the retreat, the structure of the retreat dissolves uh, back into the space of awareness that we've been practicing, dwelling and grounding ourselves within all week. And so if we can stay rooted within that which is not arising and not passing, which just is, being supported by breath, body, as our anchor. Coming back to this moment, and although the retreat dissolves and the freeway arises and the car (laughs) and the movement um, and all the activity comes into being, uh, hopefully we can also hold an awareness uh, of another dimension of our being, which is just present here uh, and not moving anywhere. Even though it feels like we're moving and things are happening, it's always just, just here. So during this retreat, we've touched into quite, covered quite a lot of ground. Started the first night on the precepts, foundation of the path something we can consider when we go into our daily life, where they really uh, apply, maybe how to refine them, how to uh, apply them to activity, body, speech, and mind. And then from that base, we started to cultivate this more challenging aspect of the path, the whole area of samatha meditation, calming, stilling, focusing, Samadhi, gathering, dispersed mental energy, emotional content, just gathering it, gathering, gathering, gathering into arriving here, arriving here, using body as a 
anchor, being in touch, feeling our body, receiving the body. Samatha, based on an object, picking an object. It's not really an object, but something to help steady the attention, the breath. We used a lot of breath work. Always able to come back to our breath here and now. And then explore what is it like when we actually let go a little bit of holding one focus of attention and just open the awareness and investigate and contemplate what's arising in each moment through this vipassana, this insight. So in the uh, instruction, in the contemplation, we're encouraged to, to look a bit more deeply at the assumptions we make about ourselves, about life, about how we're doing based on an unclear relationship to our thinking, to our perceptions, to our reactivity. In the space of calmness and things slowing down, we might actually see that some of the assumptions are based in, uh, are erroneous. Um, And when we see more clearly, there's something very liberating, things that we've, uh, voices or perceptions that we have about ourselves or the world or others, we just see as a perception, rather than a whole way of defining our being feeling of I'm doing well or I'm not doing well or I like this, I don't like that, rather than taking it and making a solidifying sense of self, we could see things moving and changing, arising and dissolving. So the sense of self becomes more fluid, less stuck, less rigid. And Kirisai was encouraging us to actually go a bit further and look at what do all things cease into. So we are contemplating even whatever arises, even the most terrible state of mind, the most um, painful things, or even the very pleasant and things that we love when the mind is very peaceful and we love that. All of it dissolves back into just presence. So rather than getting so fascinated enchanted with the, with the beautiful and the lovely or getting despairing um, when we feel constricted and small beginning to notice where is it all ceasing where is it all arising from so this activity called panya this more fruit of the path panya or prajna seeing into and the fruit of that to the wisdom that can liberate Jan Chah used to say something very helpful that uh, true peace doesn't really come from uh, a peaceful mind or trying to control things and make them peaceful, keep our environment in a certain way and make it peaceful, or try and stop our minds when they're busy. True peace comes from wisdom, from actually being able to see the nature of things free from um, false assumptions and, uh, and delusions, being able to see this is how it is now, it's changing. So this practice of wisdom just allows uh, something very liberating about that. It allows us to soften, to open, to hold things more lightly rather than struggling so much with the world of change, rather trying to 
to grasp on so tightly, or feeling we have to uh, reject things that we don't like so powerfully, allows us to relax and just enjoy the show. There's a great uh, Indian saint, Nisargadatta, who said, wisdom says, I am nothing, while compassion says, I am everything. Between these two banks, the life of a saint flows. So we also began to open into this paradox. We were taken to the place where, in fact, true compassion comes from when there's an emptying in each moment, when there's a spaciousness, so that the right response can emerge, that, in fact, compassion and wisdom meet perfectly in the, in the ground of the heart, ground of the mind, being present in this moment, letting go, a sort of inner mudra of just letting things be, and then allowing a more intuitive response to emerge from that place. So the, the practice of insight, wisdom, takes us to really seeing there's no ultimate and fixed way we can define ourselves, our sense of self, or the world around us. Any little chunk that we take out and try and say, well, this is, you know, this is what I'm like, this is how it is, 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 is temporary, is relative, is limited. So ultimately you can see that there's no one way we can describe our being. And therefore, if there's no one little piece that we can say, this is me, then the reality is, in fact, we're not apart from everything. So therefore, when we really know our true being, we can start to open into realizing that we're actually part of the whole flow and web of life. So compassion says, there's nothing I'm separate from, ultimately. It's all us. It's all me. Not me as an ego sense, but it's all happening within the heart space. So practicing this, learning in, in just in simple moments to practice this through listening, using the method of Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin, who's a bodhisattva, who's a master of both wisdom and compassion, teaches the Heart Sutra, and in the Lotus Sutra appears as the one that made great vows, which I'd like to touch on tonight. It's a little bit about Kuan Yin. The vow power of Kuan Yin, appearing in, uh, in many different forms, many different ways, just to alleviate suffering and how perhaps we can take that as an archetype or as an image or as an inner way of um, an inner mudra to help us in our daily life. The Heart Sutra is just this constant, just allowing things to dissolve into this moment. And sometimes it's frightening for us to do that. We, we, for me, we, we feel like if we don't have something to hold on to, or even if it's our suffering, we get anxious. So sometimes people experience uh, anxiety when they're meditating, when they're letting go, when there's things that are dying away. So it's very, this Kuan Yin press is very helpful as we, we make a transition sometimes from the things that we thought we were 
the identities that we've held so tightly as they, like skins, peel away. And we feel maybe disorientated or we don't quite know who we are now or how to be in the world. We can actually begin to trust a deeper and a larger holding. So Kuan Yin helps dissolve, so she's powerful, dissolve that which is not needed anymore. And sometimes the way that happens is we experience very strong um, states or emotions for us to really look at. Where am I holding here? So one of the things that um, Eugene mentioned the first night of the retreat, he got a blast down the phone powerful, powerful anger. And Kuan Yin, in a way, manifesting in an angry form. Something to look at. What is compassion here? What is compassion for me? What is compassion for another? So, and then where's the separateness? So coming to this emptying out, letting go, there's, there's something very nice that was mentioned on this retreat, finding um, the right response, the right response to the situation. When we have a strong sense of, in, our, in, the, in the area of compassion, me being compassionate to you or me helping you or me doing something for you, even when we hold that notion... Um, in a subtle way, it creates a sense of separation. Separation is one of our profound sufferings when we come from that place. It might be very nice, it might be very lovely, it might be very helpful, but perhaps it's not the more subtle understanding of compassion. So for me, there's there's a lot that I, I consider about when I'm helping or doing things, can I just allow things to happen because I'm in the right place at the right time and this is something I can do. And then what gets added on? Sense of self, sense of me, sense of praise, sense of blame. So that our movement is just um, flowing in the web of life. We feel our place, we feel connected to the whole. And then when we can feel that, then there's a great sense of being nourished. So even though we, we might be helping or giving... Um, there's a great sense of being supported and being held by a greater flow. So finding, we've been exploring just in very little ways how to find this balance, the letting go, the emptying out, the responding, how to be with things, because in the, in the Dharma practice it's just not one movement, we haven't got just let go, and that's the only movement we can make. Um, we've also got the movement of embracing, how to bring those two movements back into our daily life, how to be able to respond, to be fully present, to be there with what's emerging, and then how to also hold lightly in a way that's not grasping, with with the letting go or the letting be happening at the same time. When we first start practice, we, we often start from a, a place of wanting something. We want something. Um, 
a very natural place to start from. Sometimes they talk about the motivation, what actually motivates us. Where do we get our energy from for practice? So often when we start, perhaps we, we want to be peaceful, or we want to be freer from suffering, or we, we want insight. Maybe if we're very grandiose about it, we want to be enlightened. <laughs> we give up on that idea after a while. <laughs> we have this, this something that, you know, something we feel lacking, and we're lacking somehow, or wounded somehow, and there's this, this is a method, this is a way to, to heal us, or to, to you know, to um, bring us something that we don't feel we have yet, confidence or power. And then as we start to go a little more deeply into practice, we realize that our, our, we're not going to unfold into our full nature unless we begin to engage with suffering. And so this, then, then the next level of motivation begins to emerge when there's really a, a willingness to begin to engage more fully with the suffering nature or the shadow material or that which has been unintegrated or um, the parts of us that are orphaned out somewhere, dislocated, ungathered in. So sometimes the motivation can come very strong. Certainly when I started practice, perhaps that was my one of my very strong motivations is that I was felt um, in a great state of dukkha, although no one was really doing anything to me. It was just, I was very aware of being in a strong sense of dukkha, strong sense of world weariness. And my motivation came that I actually wanted to alleviate that suffering and wanted to uh, not have to deal with this world of samsara. And I was hoping that this would be some kind of quick ladder out practice. Um, and when the motivation comes from that, one can have quite a lot of energy. But there's still a false notion in there. There's this notion of me as a suffering being and somewhere I want to go other than here. Whether we call it nibbana or enlightenment. Um, you know, there's somewhere that we're going to. And it's, not, it's definitely not here. <laughs> With this body and mind. And so one can sometimes, in that kind of state, has very idealized notions of how we would be when we're, you know, finally arrived, wherever we think we're going to arrive. <laughs> so that kind of carried me for quite a while, <laughs> kind of level of motivation. And then this, uh, this more profound level, the, what's sometimes called the bodhicitta, the heart of compassion, when we actually realize that in fact, this notion of a separate self is, is although there, of course there is a sense of self, a relative sense of self, a psychological sense of self, and it has a purpose, and it's a vehicle, and so on, and it's as good as to, to try and get it as healed, as intact as possible. Still, in a way, it's a very um, temporary notion. Um, fundamentally, at a deeper level, our being is not apart from the totality. So relaxing into that, one begins to realize, well, in a way I'm suffering, but look around me. (laughs) I'm not the only one here. There's a lot of other suffering going on. A lot of other pain, and a lot of it a lot worse than what I think I'm experiencing. So once we start to open, we can relax enough out of our own, you know, obsession our own uh, path and practice and enlightenment process and 
suffering, we begin to actually notice there's a whole, you know, world out here. Um, and I'm intimately connected with it. And so this more deeper connectedness, our sense of connectedness, where we can actually feel a relationship to the world begins to evoke this more, perhaps not strong, powerful compassion at first, but just maybe um, feeling the poignancy, one feels it. And the desire to respond, to alleviate. So this is the beginning of what's called the third level of motivation, the bodhicitta heart. And when this is well cultivated, this is considered to have the most energy for motivation. This is something that carries when, you know, through lifetimes and becomes very articulated in an in intention, something we can cultivate and articulate in a particular kind of inten- intention. Now, when I first heard about the Bodhisattva vow, the Bodhisattva way, I got, um, I got a bit frightened because from my perspective as someone suffering and using the practice to catapult themselves out of samsara, I didn't want to be around for a few eons. <laughs> it was very hard for me to be around for another day. I had a profound sense, one of my sankharas, one of my tendencies or patterns that's been very strong for me in my life that I've had to really work with and open to and be with and notice and inquire into is what they call vipuvatanha, which is basically means a desire not to exist strong part of me that just, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not as strong as that I'm not able to enjoy, but it's certainly I've experienced it very powerfully, very, with a lot of strength. You know, it's the sort of staying under the duvet syndrome, <laughs> um, the withdrawing, the, 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 you know, the struggle to really fully engage and allow one's energy to come through into life. So that's been a strong sankara. So the notion of, when I'm thinking from an ego place of staying around and helping others was, was terrifying actually, not, not just frightening. I used to come out in a cold sweat. Uh, and then I remember one day I was at the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was giving some teachings in London and four-day teachings. And, um, and at the end of them all, he gave the Bodhisattva vows and I took them. And then I really went into a panic. <laughs> Uh, a serious panic. I said, think, what have I done? And it's the, the, His Holiness too. I mean, I've done this with His Holiness, and I mean, he's not—he's just not Joe Bloggs. I mean, this is this is a serious practitioner here, and I've made this vow and this intention, and my God, the sweat was pouring down, and, and so I stayed with that for a while, <laughs> a few more years, and. Uh, <laughs> And it was lovely when, when uh, talking with uh, my teacher, one of my teachers, great teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, and he used to reflect around this notion of bodhisattva rather than the sense of me. I mean, that's an erroneous sense. I mean, me being around for eons. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's a bit grandiose anyhow. <laughs> Helping you all guys, you know, <laughs> down to the last blade of grass. He, would, he said he used to contemplate it more as an encouragement just to have all the time in the world to patiently be with this moment. And I thought, well, I can do that. I mean, I might not be able to do it, but I can take that on board as a possibility um, as the Bodhisattva heart. 
And so rather than projecting this sense of self out into eternity, um, just all that can I actually be with my painful knee? Can I be with my grumpy mind? Can I be with my whippoatana, my desire not to exist right now? Can I be with this much? And surely, can we start with ourselves again? Can we develop the bodhisattva heart in relationship to this being, to the, uh, to the different guests and visitors that come to, within our sphere of awareness? We might have a great idea, I want to help all beings, and then as soon as a grumpy mind comes or an irritated feeling or anger, we just knock it out. Poof. And yet that's a being. That's an energetic form that's come into the space. And it needs awareness. It needs, needs to be heard. It needs to be listened to. So this, this profound practice of guanyin um, is, emerges from this bodhisattva heart, from this taking all the time in the world to be able to be with how it is now, patiently, listening in deeply, dissolving the sense of self and other. As it says in one of the Dharma doors, this mind is already vast and complete with a thousand dharmas. It already is. Above it equals the Buddha mind, below it's identical with all that lives. There's no distinction. So Kuan Yin, who's Kuan Yin? Well, I don't know. Guan Yin is quite mysterious in many ways. And as much as I love insight practice and inquiry, um, I realize that the energy and the Dharma doors of Kuan Yin don't reveal themselves to just a willful, rational mind wanting to inquire and put it into an intellectual, conceptual framework, which, which is, I mean, we can do that. We can, um, I mean, there are... Guan Yin appears, I'd like to mention a little bit where she appears in the sutras and how, how she, he, because it can be also he, appears. Um, but fundamentally, when my experience of engaging with the energy of Guan Yin is like you making an invitation to the universe. May, may I be more open to compassion? May I be more open to profound wisdom? And then just allowing whatever to come and work. Uh, with me, through me. So Kuan Yin is a mysterious Dharma door in a way. Um, and it's quite hard for us as Westerners because we like to have everything in a little framework so we can feel we've got a handle on something. And this Dharma door doesn't quite work in that way. Kuan Yin appears... Literally, the word, uh, the Sanskrit word, avalokiteshvara, avalo means to regard, kwan means to regard, kite, shur means the, the, the world, and shvara means sound, yin means sound. So it's the one that regards the sounds. And there's a sutra in the Mahayana school called the Shurangama Sutra, where the Buddhas gather together with all his buddies, Great bodhisattvas, Manjusri's there, all kinds of big bodhisattvas there, Kuan Yin's there. And he's asking, what is your preferred method of enlightenment? What is, you know, how did you do it? <laughs> how did you awaken? And so uh, Kuan Yin talks about returning the sound to the hearer as a method. 
and uh, which is part of what we've been doing. We maybe not we can listen to external sounds, but we've been listening to the internals, not just sound as in sound, but also all movement, all being, all manifestation is sound. So listening and returning to the hearer. So here we have both the method of wisdom and compassion, listening to the sounds of suffering within the world, wherever they appear, within, without, so-called within, without, is the method or the Dharma door, deep, deep compassion, deeply listening in, listening in, returning the sound to the hearer, is dissolving it back into the mind ground. Who's listening now? We just see that it was just, there's just listening, there's just the awareness, you can't really get behind it. You just can be that. So the Buddha said, well, that's this, this very good, and this, this is considered one of the um, optimum Dharma doors for this age that we're in, which I find quite interesting to think about, considering that we, we live in very hectic and complex times, and we can't always um, have a very peaceful and quiet environment within which to practice, but we can, we can receive the sounds of the world and return the sound to the hearer in this moment, who's listening? Allowing through the who to dissolve the distinction. Me and you, my suffering, your suffering, what does it matter? On that level, I know on other levels it's important to know the distinction, the psychological levels. And uh, just talking on this more inclusive level. So in the Lotus Sutra, is where... um, Kuan Yin appears and with her vows, or his vows. And it's something that is a sutra that's not often taught in um, or talked about, and it's not one that I have a lot of understanding of either. It's still, in some ways, a very, you know, as I said, a mysterious Dharmador for me. So I don't feel, you know, totally qualified at all to, to but I just share, try to share a little taste so that we can each explore a bit more. In the Lotus Sutra, which is attributed to the Buddha, one of the later sutras, just before he entered Parinibbana in the Mahayana school, he talks about the vows that Kuan Yin makes. Well, Kuan Yin talks about her own vows that she makes when she's asked. And so just, I just mention a few of them to give you a, an idea. There's, there's quite a few of them, too many to go through right now. Suppose there are innumerable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, this is a Mahayana Sutra, (laughs) so it always gets very, very big, millions of living beings who are undergoing various trials and suffering. If they hear of this Bodhisattva who listens to the world's sounds and single-mindedly calls her name, then at once she will perceive the sound of their voices and they will gain all deliverance from their trials. And then they go, she goes on. Should they enter a great fire, the fire will not burn because of her supernatural powers. Should they be washed away by a great flood, they would immediately find themselves in a shallow pace. Uh, should they be set upon, um, set upon a great sea and a fierce wind should blow their ship off course and it drifted to the land of the Rakshakshas demons, and they would be saved and so on. So it goes through all these things that can happen in one's life and and the vow power um, of Kuan Yin is said to be able to to be very effective. So this in a way is an irrational thing that we can actually 
quantify, but we can explore it. Ultimately, if we remember in the saying that um, the mind is equal to the Buddhas above and identical to all the living beings below, Guan Yin is part of the one mind. It's not separate from who we are ultimately. So in some ways it may seem at first out there, but ultimately it's all part of the, the, the unity so calling on this, the Kuan Yin is considered one who's made this great Bodhisattva vow, um, was a great Buddha in a previous eon. When you get into Buddhist cosmology, it gets very, very vast. And um, because of the suffering of the world, made a great vow to want to stay close to, to this realm. And so is available, the energy of Kuan Yin is always available to be called on, when in difficulty particularly. So then in the Lotus Sutra, it talks about, well, how does Guan Yin manifest? In what form? You know, does she look like that when she kind of bounces down to earth in one of these, these big pictures? Well, in fact, the energy of Guan Yin can appear in any form. So the Buddha answered the Bodhisattva who asked this question and said, well, if there's someone who needs to be liberated by a Buddha, then Guan Yin will appear like that. If there's someone that needs to be liberated by a king or a queen, she will appear like that. If there's someone that needs to be liberated by a general or a, an elder or a man or a woman or a monk or a nun or a lay person or a maiden or a lad or even a non-human, <laughs> you know, there's no limits on it, basically. However, compassion needs to appear in whatever form. It can be in a, even in a, a dragon, a god, a yaksha, a gandhava, an asura. I mean, asuras aren't easy beings to be around. Um, human, non-human, and so forth, all of these different forms can teach the Dharma. And basically, it's all Kuan Yin appearing. So it's just one, it's just a, a way, a worldview of looking at the things that can come to us, the forms that can come to us, um, that open us, teach us. And some of those are come, come in, in being in love and being opening us in that way, maybe. Other ones are going to come through a terrible divorce and a profound suffering where we have to really deeply contemplate what's happening here and where's the compassion. So it can come in any form whatsoever. I just want to tell a, a, a little story about Kuan Yin's vows um, because it's, it's hard for me to believe that one could actually call on Kuan Yin and Kuan Yin could come um, and somehow save one from a terrible situation because of my, my discerning, rational mind. But we were in a situation in our um, hermitage in South Africa where we'd been, we were doing a three-month retreat, a small group of us. And uh, during the winter time, it gets very dry like here. Um, or oh, this summer, you, you have that in the summer. In, the, in South Africa, it's the winter, and there's a lot of fire risk. And we'd been doing, we did a quite, we did a Vipassana retreat and then we did a Kuan Yin recitation retreat. Traditionally, the Chinese form, you do a week of Kuan Yin recitation and then you do a week of, of holding the Huato. The, the, it's a Chan retreat, like the, the Hu meditation. So it's more like a Zen retreat and those two go together. And there's a good reason why they put those two together. We'll go into it another time. But we were doing this, this practice. Um, and during our retreat, we, we had a storm, a windstorm, a, a terrifying windstorm. It was so powerful that all the trees were snapping around us. And at the time, Kitty Sire was living in a small hut. Um, and on his wall, he'd had a picture of Kuan Yin and Mother Mary, the two 
Mother Mary in a way is also a similar manifestation. And this, the, the wind was so powerful, the, the, the hut weighed a ton, that it picked the hut up and just threw it and smashed it like a matchbox, just poof. Picked up another one of our, um, pushed over another hut, just poof, that's how strong it was. Picked up one of our teepees and just, you know, that was gone. So there was stuff flying everywhere, including the Kuan Yin picture. Everything was just kind of all over the place. Um, so we went to try and pick stuff up, and I found the Kuan Yin picture and the Mother Mary. And I, and I, I think this, the Kisar is really keen on these pictures. I'm going to right now put them in my drawer so that they're safe. Okay, on the, on the, on the wind, in the distance came a fire. <laughs> it wasn't just a wind that we had this fire that someone had... Um, accidentally set off and the wind had also um, broken the electrical lines um, and set off fire in the grasses. So we started to notice this fire sweeping down the valley looking very close to us and at a certain point we realized we had to basically run for it. It was going to, we were in serious danger and as it turned out the fire jumped, our 200 meter fire breaks jumped the road and came straight up, racing up to the hermitage and went straight through it with us running ahead, literally 10 minutes, get away in our car. And um, it, it burned up a few huts and it went round. I mean, it, amazingly, it didn't burn our buildings, and particularly our thatched buildings, and it ignited logs. It was so hot, it was igniting logs all around the thatched shrine room. But it just passed through. Um, and I was sure, I thought, this finished, the hermitage finished. And we came back and to find, in fact, it was still intact. Everything black, every square inch black. And we cleaned up, we spent a day, we were in shock, obviously, spent a day or so cleaning up. And we had a hut, which was our kitchen. We were walking in and out, getting water and trying to, I mean, there was black everywhere. And then on the second day, we walked outside of the hut and there was the Kuan Yin picture. It did because Kirisar had said to me, "Where is the Kuan Yin picture?" The day before, I said, "In the drawer." And then Mother Mary was there, but no Kuan Yin. And there she was sitting outside the hut, a place we'd walked over a hundred times, and a place where, she, if she had been out in the fire, she would have definitely it would have been burnt because it was a plastic picture. And we just had the feeling that this was one of the responses that um, came from our practice. And there's a line also in one of the Kuan Yin Dharma's doors. Um, the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. This is a mysterious aspect of it. You practice the way, you practice maybe holding the name, doing the mantra, doing your awareness, practicing the emptying of the Heart Sutra of Kuan Yin, the compassion of just how is it now receiving. We just do that, we can only do that, but we can't get, we don't know what the response will be. There is a response. There's a response from the universe, there's a response from the enlightened realms. The response in the way is intertwined inconceivably. We can't conceive what that will be, what miracles and mysterious things can unfold for us in our lives. So it's just, just to stretch us out of, I'm doing all this and I'm in control of all this, just to allow us to relax and open into this profound um, holding of the, the Kuan Yin Dharma of, of Um, kindness and compassion. There's one more um, principle that I think is quite important 
to mention in cultivating the Dharma, whatever our Dharma door, whether it's Vipassana, Samatha, um, holding of mantras, and whatever, that often what we come across and say on a meditation retreat, what we tend to experience um, is our past conditioning, or what we call sankara, the patterns that have already been conditioned in, whether it's from our childhood or habits, tendencies that we have from previous lives, wherever it comes from, a lot of what we land up dealing with is, is that. Like I was just saying, one of my mine is the the wipuatanha, the desire not to exist, or you know, and I have thousands of them. <laughs> um, I mean, when the nice ones, not a problem, but I mean, I have thousands that tend to obstruct, being constricted, being fearful, um, you know, whatever it is. I mean, they, these things that that shape our our energy bodies and our being, and and create these senses of self that sometimes we experience them as as heavy or constricting or unfree. Our energy, the heart's radiance that Kitty Sara was talking about is obstructed. It can't flow freely. It can't contact and respond to the world um, freely and with the appropriate response because it meets with fear or it meets with one of our patternings. And so there's an interesting, from the Theravada text, there's an interesting... Um, sutta that the Buddha taught. I just read a little bit about the to do with um, obstruction and the dissolving of obstruction. Suppose a person were to drop a salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Start again. (laughs) Okay. There is a case where a trifling, unwholesome act done by a certain individual takes them to an an unhappy destination. There is the case where the very same sort of deed done by another individual is experienced in the here and now and for the most part barely appears for a moment. So here you have the situation, two people do the same unwholesome act and one lands up in a you know, deep place of despair or they get arrested or something happens that the karma of it is, is very constricted and painful. Another person, exactly the same act, and they feel it. They may think, what did I do that for? And maybe they feel the burning of it. They feel that wasn't quite right. And then it dissolves and they carry on. The light, they're not totally knocked out of balance by it. It just hits and they move on. So what, what is going on there? So this is about the... The flexibility of karma, really. Now, in the case of a trifling, unwholesome act done by, by, by what sort of individual that takes him to an unhappy destination, this is the case where that certain individual is undeveloped in contemplating the body, undeveloped in virtue, undeveloped in mind, undeveloped in discernment, restricted, small-hearted, dwelling with suffering, an unwholesome act done by this kind of person takes them to an unhappy place. Now the same trifling, unwholesome deed by, done by what sort of person is experienced in the here and now and for the most part barely appears for a moment. There's, this is the case where the certain individual is developed in contemplating the body, developed in virtue, 
developed in mind, developed in discernment, unrestricted, large-hearted, dwelling with the unlimited. Such an act done by this sort of person is experienced in the here and now and for the most part barely appears for a moment. And then he makes the analogy, which is quite interesting. Suppose that a person were to drop a small salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Would the water in the cup become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? Yes, Lord, the disciples say to the Buddha. Now suppose that same person were to drop a salt crystal into the river Ganges. What do you think? Would the water in the river Ganges become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? No, Lord. In the same way, there is the case where an unwholesome act done by one individual takes him to an unhappy destination, and there is the case where that very same act done by another individual is experienced here and now. In this way, they are both, well, he kind of goes on saying they're both, um, you know, the analogy is that one is, the first one is like the small cup of water and the second one is like the river Ganges. So what's going on here, this is a very profound sutra to contemplate um, because sometimes when we feel our obstructions or our sankaras, it feels like we've just got a small cup of water. It's very bitter. We don't have much to dissolve it. It, it feel, we, we get constricted, we get compounded, we, we, we don't have a lot. Um, so in terms of what holds our Vipassana practice, what holds our insight practice, there's a, there's a profound principle about the kind of blessings that we cultivate, the kind of um, pos- field of positive energy that we can cultivate that helps consciously to dissolve that which is obstructs. And in relationship to the Kuan Yin practices, when we haven't got enough energy ourselves to do it, one of the principles of holding mantra or connecting with a sense of however we understand it as archetype or a higher dimension of our own being or calling on that or just offering that into a sense of the vastness of the universe or just kind of in a prayerful way. Uh, I think I'd like to use that word prayer because it's sometimes not used often in, in the meditative Vipassana world but I think it's you can use these words and bring new meaning into them because I think it's a very profound part of spiritual life, a prayerful way to actually call or to open to the possibility that there's help beyond this constricted state, however we understand where that help comes from. And in this way, it's a bit like connecting with the river Ganges. It's a bit like connecting with a, a deeper or a larger flow that helps dissolve what we can't obstruct, what we can't, um, our obstructions and what we can't dissolve ourselves. This is one of the principles that's, that's, um, that's operating in this Guan Yin Dharma door. I mean, there's many different principles, but this is one quite important one, one profound one that we can explore. It's, it's a bit like when we, when we feel, you know, these days when we, we got working with some of our stuff, we might go to a therapist or a friend or a Dharma friend or a Sangha friend and just being with that other person helps open up more space and more holding around it and we can feel the lessening or the, we can feel it encourages our own capacity it, it invites us to remember that we've also got strength we've also got capacity in the same way when we contemplate an archetype like Guan Yin thousand hands and eyes and even imagining that we're actually sitting um, within Guan Yin within the energy of Kuan Yin, that we are Kuan Yin, actually, the mind ground itself, 
the perfect manifestation of the pure mind is Kuan Yin, wisdom and compassion and balance. Then it encourages us to know that we've got the river Ganges is there available to us. Uh, we have a, a greater field from which we can call upon. So sometimes when our sword of wisdom blunts <laughs> and we can't cut through our obstructions, this happens. I, when I went through a profound period in the monastery when I was practicing as a nun. Um, and our main teaching, and I think things have evolved and changed and moved within the monastic life, but there was a lot about non-attachment, letting go, cutting through, and so on. A lot of vipassana as a method to you know, just contemplate and let go. And actually, I fell, I fell into a very deep depression at a certain point in my monastic career, <laughs> um, which lasted a long time. And, and it happens sometimes... In the Christian language, I call it the dark night of the soul. That sometimes, in, the, in any practice life, when you come to the end of your will power, um, and you've sort of or left, you know, certain um, things behind, and yet you haven't arrived in, into a new opening, you you meet these sort of wastelands, desertous places. Fearful places, dark places. My teacher, Ajahn Smith, used to make the analogy, it's like when the, um, leaving Egypt and to go to the promised land, you, you sort of leave one reality, one door closes. And this happens a lot for people that practice. They find doors in their old life close and the new door hasn't opened up yet. And there's this no man's land. And, and sometimes in those no man's lands, uh, we can, our energy can get you know, the inspiration isn't so strong, so the motivation flags. Uh, and we can, the energy can sort of seep away. And they're difficult spaces to be in, difficult to traverse. When I hit this place in the monastery, um, it, was, it was profoundly difficult. <laughs> and I noticed all my other practices of Vipassana, the this, the that, none of it was really making much of a dent. Um, and there was also a strong desire to try and, you know, from willpower, shift this state. And unfortunately, I couldn't. I think it's quite fortunate sometimes when we can't, out of an act of will, shift something. We have to, we have to find another resource within ourselves. It's more humble, more, more patient. And so what came up for me in perhaps the darkest part of this period was a, a prayer. And it came from my Christian background. It very, just, I didn't, Think about what should I do? It just—it was like the psyche gave it to me. It just came up, uh, and it was just for my Catholic past. Lord, I'm not worthy to receive Thee, but only say the word, and my soul will be healed. And it just—and it just came on its own, and it just kept coming and coming, and gradually it helped soothe. It helped. It was like a little raft, a little raft. And so I find that that there's certain points in our practice in our life when either the sword of wisdom's got blunt or we don't know in those periods, it's the great don't know mind, that this sense of just offering up, being able to offer up. I don't know, even if we don't have a sense of offering up to any other being, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't need to be, into the mystery in a prayerful, humble, gentle way. 
and the, the way and the, res- the response are intertwined inconceivably. There, there's a response. We, we just don't know how and when and it's going to interact with our lives. This bodhisattva way, this way of a meditator, uh, is a great blessing, I feel, even though in many ways it doesn't look like we're doing very much. People say, well, what did you do last week? You just sat on your bum the whole week? <laughs> what was that about? It's a very, it, it doesn't look um, very dynamic. You know, you're not going out there to save the world. You're not, you know, doing creative things. But I like to see it, just an image to to leave you with tonight. I like to see it that we're being like trees. Uh, Which sitting here, we're we're just a tree. Uh, And the the bodhisattva heart is like being a tree. And we know what it's like when we don't have any trees or when we cut down our trees. And you think that the tree, what's it doing? It's just there. Maybe it's an ugly tree, maybe it's a beautiful tree, but it's, it's fulfilling a function. It takes in all the poisons, the carbon dioxide we can't um, digest, and it transforms them into oxygen. And it doesn't ask for, you know, doesn't ask for any dana. <laughs> it doesn't ask for, <laughs> you know, it doesn't ask for anything really. I mean, probably if we could hear the trees, they'd say, "Don't cut me down." I'm sure they would say that. Um, but it's just doing its thing. You know, it's not asking for great credits or. And a meditator, bodhisattva heart, this is, this is really the essence of it. We just breathe with suffering, we just breathe with the poisons, and we, we can, as we just allow, we don't even have to do anything, we just allow awareness to, to mingle with that. Our moments of mindfulness, our moments of awareness, and moments of gathering. And as more and more as that deepens and becomes more integrated into our whole being, and uh, then we're able to oxygenate, bring space, bring moments of light, moments of opening uh, to the world around us. So I offer these thoughts on the mysterious way of the Dharma. And uh, again, say it's been magical to be here. And really wish everyone well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.